will. We're going to start a series sometime in October, a new series through a book study of the Bible, but until then we're just doing a little brief something that I think, well, it's, it's review, it's basic, but I think it's important. Um, our text that we're using is found in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Let me read that and then we'll begin. Matthew 6, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Do not, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. From last time, remember we said... We each have three things in common, time, talent, and treasures. We each have time, talent, or talents, and treasures. This miniature series is focusing on our treasures, and from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, as we just read, we are discussing the treasure principle. The treasure principle is defined as, we can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. We can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. There are six components to this treasure principle, and this morning we're addressing just the first one. Notice, part one, God owns every treasure, and we are his investment managers. God owns every treasure. All treasure is his, and we are his investment managers. Sometimes scripture uses the word steward because steward and manager are synonymous. So the first component is that God owns every treasure, and we are his investment managers. And that statement has serious implications. Um, Let me reemphasize the first half from this first component. God owns every treasure. And that fact about his ultimate ownership contradicts traditional human thinking. Moses himself commented on that, Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18. Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. Paraphrased as someone is boasting that he has built his business from the ground up and he did it himself. He became a financial success on his own. My hand and my power did it. Verse 18, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he, God, who gives you the power to get wealth. Moses countered that no one can pull himself up by his bootstraps. He said there is no such thing as a self-made man. Someone might have accumulated a significant financial portfolio, but according to verse 18, it was God that gave him the abilities he needed to do that. C.S. Lewis in his classic book, Mere Christianity, made this statement. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to His service, you could not give Him anything that was not, in a sense, His already. God owns it all. Deuteronomy ten fourteen. <clears throat> Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens... Let me pause there for a moment. 
There are three different heavens mentioned in Scripture. One is the immediate atmosphere around the earth. The immediate atmosphere. This first heaven consists of the air, atmosphere, 6.2 miles up from the earth. And in a technical sense, it's called the troposphere. Most of our weather happens in that trophosphere. Second, a second heaven is stellar space. Stellar means stars. The second heaven includes um, our solar system and our Milky Way galaxy. Third, a third heaven is the heaven of heavens. This third heaven is the highest heaven and is located hundreds of light years from this earth. This third heaven is God's actual headquarters where the New Jerusalem is located at this moment. Now, if three heavens sound familiar, Mormonism teaches that there are three heavens, although Mormonism's heavens are different. The LDS Church, meaning the Church of uh, Latter-day Saints, um, teaches that the three heavens are, the highest heaven is called the celestial heaven, and as non-Mormons, we cannot go there. Then second, there is the terrestrial heaven, and then the third and lowest heaven is the telestial heaven. And uh, according to Mormonism, uh, we as evangelical Christians will end up in the telestial heaven. And uh, that is all based on a misunderstanding of a passage from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40 through 42. But notice, according to this verse from Deuteronomy, heaven and the highest heavens, meaning the biblical heavens, belong to the Lord your God. Also, the earth with all that is in it belongs to the Lord our God. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. Don't miss this part. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Job 41, verse 11. God said, everything under heaven is mine. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, God also owns the hills, not just the cattle. Verse 11, I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all its fullness. Ezekiel 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. Haggai 2, verse 8, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple or habitation of the Holy Spirit? This is addressed to Christians. Who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Verse 20, for you were bought at a price. That price was Christ's sacrificial death for our sins on the cross. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. These pro-abortionist feminists hold up protest signs reading, My body, my choice. My body, my choice, insinuating that someone should have the right of self-determination and that a woman should be free to do with her body what she wishes to do. 
not considering that the unborn fetus is a separate being from the mother. But the Christian, in a technical sense, can never actually use that slogan, my body, my choice, because it's not our bodies that are in question. Our bodies and our entire actual being is God's. God owns us. The principle is that we possess, but God owns. Yes, we possess, but God owns. In a practical sense, we possess tangible treasures, but in an actual sense, God owns those treasures. The monies and material possessions that we use are actually on loan to us from God. He entrusts stuff to us. The more correct wording is entrust, not give. He entrusts stuff to us in this lifetime so we can manage it for Him. A classic biblical example of an ancient owner-manager arrangement was an Old Testament character named Joseph. The Jewish genealogical line started at Abraham. He was the original progenitor of the Jewish people, Abraham. Then Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob's name was ultimately changed to Israel. Jacob or Israel had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the heads of the original 12 tribes of Israel. That was the ancient nation of Israel in its beginning embryonic form. Of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph was his father's favorite son. His father um, favored him above the others. That unfair criticism caused his brothers to become envious of him. So much so, his brothers sold Joseph as a slave into Egypt. Joseph's brothers probably thought he would be sold as a common laborer in some heavy construction project, but that's not what happened. Joseph was sold and enslaved to a rich and high-ranking government employee named Potiphar. Notice Genesis 39, starting at verse 4. So Joseph is now the possession of Potiphar. So Joseph found favor in his sight, meaning in Potiphar's sight, and served him. Then he... Potiphar made him, Joseph, overseer of his house, and all that he had, all that Potiphar had, he put under his, Joseph's, authority. Verse 5, so it was, from the time that he, Potiphar, had made him, Joseph, overseer of his house, and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Verse 6, thus he, this is Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's hand. This is interesting. Notice, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. He had no idea what possessions he actually owned because Potiphar had complete confidence in Joseph's abilities to manage his possessions. He didn't micromanage Joseph. He had total trust in Joseph. Then the statement is made, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That last 
statement would prove to be problematic for Joseph. Please understand, Joseph owned absolutely nothing in Potiphar's household. He was a slave, but he managed all of Potiphar's household, the entire household. Now, Joseph's master's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, was an immoral seductress. And because he was handsome and attractive, she tried to seduce Joseph. Joseph was an honorable man, and he refused her advances multiple times. Mrs. Potiphar was infuriated at being rejected, so she retaliated through accusing Joseph to her husband Potiphar of attempting to rape her. That's what she told him, that Joseph had attempted to rape her. Unfortunately, Potiphar listened to that false accusation from Mrs. Potiphar and decided to punish Joseph. Some historians believe the only reason Potiphar punished Joseph was to appease Mrs. Potiphar and save his marriage. Joseph's character and work performance had been so impressive that Potiphar probably wasn't convinced that Joseph was guilty of doing what he had just been accused of doing. That's the reason he didn't have him executed, as he easily could have. So in order to save Joseph from execution and still punish him in order to satisfy Mrs. Potiphar, Potiphar sent Joseph to prison. So Joseph was incarcerated on those false charges. But even in prison, he still served as a manager. Notice Genesis 39 continues, verse 20. Then Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he, God, the Lord God, gave him, Joseph, favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 22, and the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. People, this is incredible. Joseph was an exceptional, skilled manager. And the prison warden uh, was aware of that. He was able to see that in Joseph. So he requested Joseph manage the other inmates. I mean, this is an interesting arrangement, as he was an inmate, an inmate himself, managing all these other inmates in the prison. I'm not sure what the prison warden did. I guess he just, you know, took time off. I don't know. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority. Meaning, the prison keeper didn't even check on Joseph. He so trusted him. Notice, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him prosper. People, Joseph was an unusually gifted man. Joseph illustrated this first component of this treasure principle. God owns every treasure, and we are his investment managers. God has created all things. And because God has created all things, God then owns all those things he has created. And that includes us. In biblical language, God acts as our owner and master, and we are his slaves, just as Joseph was. And that is illustrated throughout the New Testament. Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 
and verse 1. Paul and Timothy, his associate, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss this part. Most people aren't aware of this. That word bondservant is translated from the Greek word doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S, pronounced doulos. And doulos meant slave. Doulos was an extremely slavish word. That word bondservant, though, is an unfortunate translation because doulos means slave, and it has never meant anything other than slave. It doesn't mean servant. A servant was someone hired to do something, whereas a slave was someone that was owned. He was someone else's actual possession. And that is a huge distinction and difference between servant and slave. The word bondservant actually camouflages the essence and meaning of this Greek word doulos. And that's unfortunate. The New Testament uses doulos to describe someone that is a total subordinate to his master. Uh, That master owns him. He has no freedom other than those freedoms his master and owner permits him to have. Some people might have heard of an almost obscure translation called the Goodspeed translation. Edgar J. Goodspeed was a professor of Greek at the University of Chicago. He was considered a genius in the ancient Greek language, and he translated that ancient word doulos, he translated that word as slave each time doulos was used in the Greek New Testament text. Remember, the entire New Testament originally was recorded in Greek, ancient Greek, not modern Greek, ancient Greek. Most English translations, and this is not true of translations in other languages, but in almost all English Bibles, the translators render the Greek word doulos as this hyphenated word bondservant. We just read two verses that included the word bondservant. There was no parallel to that word bondservant in the ancient Greek language. There was just servant or there is slave. There was no middle concept. There is now, just on the market, a newer English translation of the Bible from the faculty uh, of the Master's Seminary called the Legacy Standard Bible. It's an updated version of the New American Standard Bible, 1995 edition. Each time in the Legacy Standard Bible, the Greek New Testament uses that word doulos. It is translated as slave, not as servant, not bondservant, slave. The foremost lexicography on the Greek language is a multi-volume set called Kittle. It is the final word on every Greek, ancient Greek word that ever existed. In an article on doulos, this is what Kittle said, there is no need to trace the history of this word. There is no need to discuss the meaning of this word. It has never meant anything in any usage but slave. So understand that throughout the Greek New Testament, that that word doulos, wherever it appears, should always be translated as slave, not bondservant. Not servant, slave. And it isn't in 
all cases in most Bible translations. Now, why is that? I'm curious. Why would biblical translators create a new word, bondservant, and use that word instead of the original essence and meaning of doulos, slave? I believe it is because of the stigma and negative connotation of that word, slave. If I were pastoring a primarily black congregation, and that would be special, I've mentioned to Hopi countless times. I, I wish I pastored a, a black congregation. Uh, I've preached at two black churches, and I never had so much fun. Uh, because black congregations are much more responsive to preaching. Um, I would define preaching to a white congregation as a 45-minute attempt to raise the dead. I, I cannot seem to solicit a holy grunt from some of the members of our congregation. Seriously. I have a brother, Phil. Uh, he's been here. He's, uh, his profession, he was an opera singer, international opera singer for more than two decades. He's now in Lexington, Kentucky. He has been given a, a free ride scholarship. He's in graduate school. He's getting his doctorate in vocal performance. And uh, he and uh, his wife, Barbara, attend a black congregation. They've been to all these churches in Lexington, and this is the one they want to be a part of. Uh, part of it is the preaching. He's a master seminary graduate. He's an expository preacher, and he's excellent. And uh, so they're there. This is an unusual church, Main Street Baptist Church, Lexington, Kentucky, founded in 1862 by a slave. The property the church sits on was purchased from Mary Todd Lincoln's family and President Abraham Lincoln's signature is on the deed to that property. Incredible history there. But Phil and I, when we talk, I ask him how it, you know, he enjoy, and they really enjoy the church and the people. And he, he commented that the, the congregation is very responsive to the preaching. He mentioned just recently that in a recent service, uh, there's this one older woman who sits on the front row uh, each service, and uh, he said during a recent service, there was a slight pause in the sermon, and she just said aloud, and the entire room can hear it, she said, you can take your time, sir. <laughs> that has never happened to me. People look at their watches. No one has ever said, you can take your time, sir. That's what's wrong with us. That's, uh. So if I were pastoring a primarily black congregation, and if I were emphasizing this biblical truism that we are slaves to Jesus Christ, understanding how offensive that word slave is to them, and I do understand that. That word in this nation's historical context is extremely offensive to even me as a melon recessive male from European descent. I, I find it offensive because the slave trade was an abominable evil. 
It is so important to understand that a slave to Jesus Christ does not, does not represent the abusive, inhumane, and cruel form of that word that was so common in this nation's past. It's completely different. There is more freedom in being a slave to Jesus then there is freedom outside of Jesus. John 8, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Commit sin here doesn't mean commit a sometimes occasional sin, but this means an habitual sin. To practice sin as an ongoing problem. This could be a reference to self-destructive addictions, alcoholism, eating disorders, drug abuse, uncontrollable spending habits, sexual addiction, and on and on. Notice Jesus said whoever commits sin, practices sin, is a slave of sin. And that word slave in this verse is translated from the Greek word doulos. Apart from Jesus we are more susceptible to becoming slaves to sin. Just two verses earlier in verse 32, Jesus said, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall shall make you free. And then in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said that he in and of himself was and is the truth. So there's more freedom in Jesus than outside Jesus. Jesus is our Lord and Master, and we are His doulos. We are His slaves. And people, that is a good thing. Someone asked me if I ever considered getting a tattoo. I mean, you know, since Hopi's all tattooed up. And uh, she has a tattoo. She does. You see her after the service. It's, it's a little different. It's, she's an identical mirror image twin. Her sister Faith is in heaven. And as a reminder of her sister, she has her name tattooed on her wrist. And, and I, she thought about it and talked about it for 10 years. Finally, she just wore me down. I said, sure, go ahead and do it. <laughs> someone, asked me, someone asked me if I ever considered getting a tattoo. I said, no, I haven't. Uh, the tattoo person would have to find a part of me that wasn't wrinkled, and that would be almost impossible, so not, I haven't. But if I ever did get a tattoo, it would be that Greek word doulos. That's what it would be in Greek, I might add. Because that's the one word used in the New Testament that most clarifies the identification of the Christian. It best describes how we as Christians relate to Jesus Christ. So God, and in particular His Son Jesus, is our owner, our master, and we in turn are His doulos and slave. And this is how we should define our role as a managing slave. Notice the definition. Personal management as a slave means we are to manage the master's goods for the good of the master. We are to manage the master's, in our case, Jesus is our master, the master's goods for the good of the master. Joseph, as we just said, illustrated that principle more than any other biblical character. We just left off, he was in prison. He was in charge of the prison, but he was in prison. He's an inmate. Through a series of unusual and miraculous circumstances, Joseph was released from prison 
and was made manager of the entire Egyptian empire. He was Egypt's COO, meaning Egypt's chief operating officer. He was the top administrator in Egypt. Joseph was the Lee Iacocca of his time. Mr. Iacocca was the top executive at both Ford and Chrysler and was said to be responsible for the Ford Mustang. Joseph was the Jack Welch of his time. Mr. Welch was the CEO of General Electric. At his retirement, he received a severance package, get this, of an obscene $417 million. The largest such package in business history. I don't think he deserved it, sorry. Joseph was just as gifted or more gifted than those men at management. Joseph understood that personal management for his master meant managing the master's goods for the good of the master. This brings me to the subject of environmentalism. There's a difference between the biblical perspective on the environment and the social political movement known as environmentalism. Genesis teaches that God owns the earth and God owns all that is on the earth but God has loaned all that to man to manage Genesis 1 verse 26 then God said let us this is the triune God speaking to himself God talks to himself and he's not crazy let us make man in our image according to our likeness notice let them have dominion let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Someone said, what is the difference between man and animal? Well, man is created in the image of God, imago Dei. Animals are not. In the image of God, he created he him. Male and female, he created them. Please notice, God did not create non-binary human beings. A non-binary person is someone who doesn't identify themselves as either a male or a female. Sometimes a non-binary person identifies themselves as a mixture of genders. But most often, uh, this non-binary person claims to have no gender identification at all. These people claim to be gender non-conforming. I suggest these people have bought into the leftless lie that gender is a social construct and not based on someone's biological sex. These people are confused. According to Genesis 1.27, God created the genders, male and female, and God created no other genders or non-genders. I just learned that July 14th was the International Non-Binary People's Day. I had no idea. I wish I had known. I would have done nothing. I just... <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> Some, something's got into me this morning. I have no idea what. <laughs> Verse 28. Then God blessed them, meaning the first man and woman, and God sent to them, be fruitful and multiply, meaning have babies, repopulate. Fill the earth and subdue it. Notice, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, 
and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Psalm 8, verse 6, You, God, hath made, have made him, man, to have dominion over the works of your hands. And there is nothing that God hasn't created. You have put all things under his, meaning man's feet. Because humans were created in God's image, God has assigned man and woman a privileged position over all his creation. Humans have been assigned dominion over the earth and dominion over all that is on the earth. Dominion means to rule over and control. So this earth and its contents are God's, but we are his managers. And biblical management implies managing and controlling and ruling over the earth's resources. And that means to protect and preserve the environment. I was talking to one of our families uh, just yesterday afternoon, and they talk about how they take, a, I guess, an off-terrain vehicle and go up into the Pine Nut Mountains. And they said you would be shocked to see that people go up there and just in the mountains, these beautiful mountains, and just dump piles of trash. What is wrong with people? We have a dump, and it's a dump. We have one. You can go there. It's not expensive. I don't understand. This is God's creation. Man doesn't have permission to abuse the earth's resources. No. Dominion includes being responsible and accountable to God because the earth is His, and we are to manage it. We should put back into nature if possible, as much as we take out of nature. Remember, we manage the master's goods for the good of the master. But secular environmentalists, more often than not, have particular objectives that contradict biblical values. One example is most, it would mean the upper 90 percentile range, most secular environmentalists are pro-abortion. Because these people feel overpopulation is a threat to the planet's actual existence. So through the means of abortion, environmentalism can exercise population control. People, that's unacceptable. We should love the earth. We should love nature. But we should love people more than the planet. One biblical example of a, an appropriate response to the environment that was something we mentioned in our Daniel series um, remember God told the Jewish people the fields and vineyards could be sown and harvested for six consecutive years, but then those same fields and vineyards were to be left alone for the seventh sabbatical year? Why? Why, were not, why weren't the people permitted to farm and harvest on year seven? That was in order to rest the land and replenish the soil's nutrients. That's a form of ancient conservationism because conservationism aims to preserve natural resources in part so as to sustain their usefulness for humans. That was Theodore Roosevelt's conservationism. John Muir is a familiar name in this region or should be. He was a preservationist more than a conservationist because he didn't want humans to see nature as a means of economic production. In 1892 he founded the Sierra Club and the Sierra Club is now a radicalized environmentalist activist organization that is incompatible with a biblical worldview. Because the earth 
and the earth's resources are God's. He created all of this. And we are to manage those resources for Him and for our benefit. Daniel Webster died in 1852. He was a statesman that served in the U.S. Congress and served as the U.S. Secretary of State under three different presidents. That is so unusual. He was one of the most famous attorneys from the 19th century. He argued more than 200 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Imagine that. Daniel Webster once attended a banquet in his honor. There were heads of state from countries around the world at that banquet. During that time, he was being honored. He was asked a serious question. Mr. Webster, what is the most profound thought that has ever entered your mind? What is the most profound thought that has ever entered your mind? Webster paused and then responded, the most important thought I have ever had was that of my individual responsibility to God. And after that response, he became so emotional, he had to excuse himself. And then after he regained his composure, he returned and spoke to that audience about the responsibility he felt managing the resources God had given him. That is a profound thought. We should not forget that thought. Genesis 41. Then Pharaoh, this is verse 39. Then Pharaoh, remember Pharaoh is the head of the entire Egyptian empire, said to Joseph, Inasmuch... As God has shown you, all, that there, all this there is no one as discerning and wise as you. Verse 41, you shall be over my house, meaning the palace, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph was promoted from prison to the palace. He became second in command in Egypt. He was so extremely successful at managing others and others' resources that he was promoted. And that's the same thing God requires from us. Since God owns it all, and since we are just managers of all that he is entrusted to us, then as doulos, as slaves, we only have responsibilities. Owners have rights. Managers have responsibilities. God has rights. We have responsibilities. But notice people aren't discussing personal responsibilities as much as people are protesting and demanding perceived personal rights. Another realization is that since God owns all that he has entrusted to us, then each decision that is made about his resources we are assigned to manage is essentially a spiritual decision. If it's a decision about employment, should I continue at this place of employment? Should I find other employment? A decision about purchasing a car or purchasing a house. Don't do it now. It's crazy inflated. Don't, that's, don't do it. Unless you're moving to Oklahoma. Um, or purchasing or, or going on a vacation. Or a decision about marriage. That means in a technical sense, all these decisions are spiritual decisions, so there is no difference, essentially, between the sacred and the secular. 
Now, we often differentiate between, we use those words, well, that's sacred and this is secular. For the Christian, though, all is sacred. All ground is holy ground. Every bush is a burning bush. Since we are to manage the master's goods, for the good of the master, all our decisions are spiritual decisions. Although some decisions are more inconsequential, such as what are we having for dinner? Although at our house, dinner does matter, just so you know. (laughs) It is a matter of some consequence. Christians are just investment managers for the owner and master. The reason we cannot take anything with us after we die is because we are the actual owners of nothing. We possess what we do for only as long as we are alive. And then our stuff is passed on to someone else because God is the actual owner of it all. That means it's not my car. It's God's. It's not my office. It's God's. It's not my laptop computer. It's God's. These aren't my clothes. These clothes are God's. This isn't my church. This church is God's church. It's not my checking account. It's hopes. I mean, it's God's. (laughs) I get confused. Understand that everything that I am and everything I have is God's. I possess, but God actually owns. I just manage what he has allowed me to have during this lifetime. In conclusion, and for those of you who are newer, when I say in conclusion, it means absolutely nothing, just so you know. There are two practical ramifications from this basic ownership principle. One is positive and one is negative. One, this is positive, is that recognizing God's ownership of all that we possess can save us from some serious headaches. Recognize that God owns it all, we just possess We are to manage it for him. Recognize that can save us from some serious headaches. I need to add some clarification. In part one of this miniature series, we mentioned the famous 18th century evangelist, John Wesley. Wesley founded the Methodist movement. Wesley wanted to give away most of his income so that there would be almost nothing left after his death, and he succeeded at doing that. Mr. Wesley could have been considered what is called a minimalist. A minimalist. Minimalism is a philosophy that promotes a hyper-simplistic existence. Minimalists get rid of unneeded items and consume and possess as little material possessions as possible. A minimalist has the attitude that whatever he doesn't have an immediate need for should, if possible, be given to someone who does have an immediate need for that something. Minimalists don't save much money or accumulate much possessions. Now understand, the Bible doesn't command and doesn't encourage minimalism. So a commitment to this minimalism is someone's personal choice. That is what John Wesley chose to do. I mentioned last time, I thought it was impractical. I honor him for that, but I don't recommend it. Choosing to be a mentalist, if someone does choose that, cannot be used as a measure of godliness. Someone isn't more spiritual than others because he's a minimalist. 
The Bible never speaks against having riches or having possessions, but instead it warns us against covetousness and greed and materialism. Some of the greatest biblical characters were persons that had enormous riches and lands and herds of livestock. United Israel, before Israel was divided in 931 B.C., United Israel had three successive kings, Saul, David, and then David's son Solomon. Solomon's reign is described in the first half of the book of 1 Kings. Solomon was the richest man throughout the biblical record in ancient times. Some believe he was the richest man of all time. Some estimate Solomon's net worth at $2 trillion. Solomon never prayed for riches. It wasn't his ambition to become rich. None of that mattered to him so much. But God still blessed him in much riches. Riches in and of themselves aren't wrong. But remember, riches are still God's. Possessions are not in and of themselves wrong. But possessions, all of them are still God's. And recognizing God's ownership of all that we possess, including riches, if we have them, can save us from some serious headaches. I had a 1981 Oldsmobile that ultimately had a 187,000 miles on it before I traded it in. I like to go at least 200,000, but I traded it in earlier on our first Honda Accord. We've owned five Hondas to date. I remember in Los Angeles one afternoon, I pulled up in the right lane at an intersection uh, beside another car. He was on the inside lane, I was on the outside lane. At an intersection, we were waiting for the red light to turn green. The light turned green, and then both he and the car beside me started into the intersection. Out of nowhere, it seemed, there was a car 90 degrees to our left that was speeding through his red light, and it crashed into the car beside mine. It had run through the red light, and it broadsided the car, center punched him actually, broadsided the car next to me. The impact from that collision then slammed that car next to me into me. The man that caused that mess was an undocumented person. He had no driver's license. He had no insurance. The man he hit had some injuries, was brought to the hospital. I never was able to receive an update on his condition. I, I hope that he was okay. Uh, he did more than $4,800 damage to my car, and that was the cost in 1986. So it wasn't just some minor fender bender. I was shocked the insurance company didn't actually total the car. This probably sounds like just utter goofiness, something I would do, but I distinctly remember, I mean, after the police came and the ambulance was there and we were still waiting for the tow truck, I remember getting out of the car, standing on the curb, staring at this mangled piece of metal and wreckage around me. And I said out loud, people could have heard me, God, that is your car. That's yours. And I don't understand this, but if this is what you want to do to your car, then it's okay with me. Now maybe sometime it might be helpful if you let me know why you wanted to do that to your car. But until then, it's okay. 
I'm cool with it. It's your car. I actually said that out loud. And then after the tow truck came, I called Hopi to come get me and bring me to the chiropractor because I was concerned about possible soft tissue damage. And so within hours after that, I was at his office. If we can learn to react to situations from the perspective that God is the owner of all that is integral to the problem we're facing, then that can relieve us of some serious, unnecessary stress. Second, this is negative. Second is that since God is the actual owner of all that we possess, He has the right and the power to take any and all of it back. God owns it. It's His. So He has the right and the power or ability to take any and all of it back. I have known people who have lost businesses because that business started to consume them to the extent there wasn't, there wasn't time for God. And God got tired of being left out and ignored. And so God took the business from them. Job recognized this principle. After Job lost his children, seven sons and three daughters died in an instant. After he lost all his servants and all his possessions, including his 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, two oxen per yoke, that's 1,000 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and he lost his houses, and he lost his barns. Job lost almost everything except for cantankerous Mrs. Job. Job said this, Job 1, verse 21. Listen to me. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The reason the Lord God has the right and the power to take it away is because it's actually His. Don't be foolish and act as though we own something because technically we own nothing. Man only possesses, God owns. God has never revoked His ownership. He has never surrendered His claim to all treasures. God didn't die and leave the earth and its resources to us. It is important to remember that we are only the investment managers of the assets God has entrusted to us. So God has the prerogative to take some or all of it back. Pastor and evangelist Greg Laurie, and I appreciate him, uh, told about an older woman who was determined to protect herself. You know, things are crazy out there, and she wanted to be prepared. She had gone shopping and was returning to her car in the parking lot. She found four men inside the car. As we said, she was prepared. She had a conceal and carry weapons permit, so she dropped her shopping bags. She pulled out her gun. She pointed it at those four men and screamed, Get out of the car now. I have a gun and I know how to use it. Those four men, terrified, quickly exited that vehicle and ran like crazy. Although she was still shaken by the experience, she felt no longer threatened, so she put away the gun and she picked up her groceries and she got into the car but for some strange reason her key 
didn't fit the ignition. She tried unsuccessfully multiple times, and then she realized that this wasn't her car. It was the same make, same model, and same color of her car, but it wasn't her car. Her car was five spaces over. She was completely embarrassed, so she found her car, loaded up her groceries, got in, and did the right thing. She drove immediately to the police station to turn herself in. The officer behind the desk listened to her account of what had just happened, and then he just busted up laughing. <laughs> and he pointed across the room to four men filing a police report about being hijacked by an old woman, five feet tall, white hair, thick glasses, who pulled a gun on them. I understand that no charges were actually filed. The problem was, she thought it was her car, but it was actually someone else's. We sometimes have made that same mistake, haven't we? God owns all treasures, and we are just His investment managers. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Actually, I think it's a relief to know that You own it all, and that we just manage it for You. But we forget that so often. That's why I've I feel this was necessary. We need to remember that we are just managers, but we need to be the best possible managers we can be of all the resources that we have available to us. Help us determine to do that. Help us to be wise managers, not foolish. Help us to make the most of what we have been given uh, for you and for others. I do pray God you'll bless the service to come. Please bless the picnic. I do pray people will come back and enjoy some time together. I think it would be so encouraging if they would. So I pray for that, and I pray that you'll keep us safe this week and bring us back next Sunday to worship you. And I pray and I ask it in the name of your special son, Jesus. Amen and amen.